0: Welcome back once again to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. I'm Greg Muller, the instructor for the course. Well, today what we're going to do is talk about dose-response relationships, the quantitative relationships in toxicology. In history, people always kind of respected that uh, the, the world as we knew it was, was somewhat uh, toxic, somewhat risky in terms of how we related to our food, our water, and in some cases, our air. The earliest observations of toxicology and toxicosis from the plant kingdom and also from the mineral kingdom in terms of the extraction of metals from mines were thousands of years ago. It was in the late 1400s, early 1500s when Paracelsus, uh, also called the father of modern toxicology, who really had his uh, beginnings in alchemy uh, and, and the beginnings of uh, ancient medicine, actually recognized uh, this quantized relationship that the dose, the dose makes the poison. Uh, In fact, if you look back to the German translation, it really is a little bit more accurately that all things are poisonous, and it's only the dose that differentiates those that are non-poisonous to those substances that are poisonous. It's with that that I think that you can take home one of the basic tenets that we're trying to explore here in Principles of Environmental Toxicology, that dose is everything. Okay, That we as, as organisms have a tremendous capability to detoxify this incredibly toxic world around us to some degree. Okay, It's when we actually get a dose that our bodies, uh, our systems uh, cannot manage in terms of the biotransformation, uh, the intoxication mechanism, that in fact we succumb to toxicosis. Our learning objectives here today. What we're going to do is try to understand some of this quantitative relationship uh, between toxic and exposure. And we've talked about exposure as being things that involve not only dose but the time and the frequency of the dosing that occurs and some of these induced effects. For the first time, we'll try to list in broad category all of these uh, potentially uh, frequently encountered toxic effects so that you understand some of the range Not everything is a lethal dose. Sometimes toxicants can have overt toxicosis that has nothing to do with lethality. And sometimes those can be very long-lived endpoints of toxicosis uh, in terms of uh, uh, scarring of tissues, uh, the inability of the tissue to rebuild itself. We're going to try to interpret some of these frequency, these normal distribution uh, uh, curves, a statistical relationship of this quantitized relationship between dose and response and population level effects. We're going to try to transform those into the classic dose response curves. Uh, The classic sigmoidal curve that you will see uh, quite often in toxicology that allows for the comparison of two different toxicants in terms of its ability to affect a toxicosis on an organism. We'll try to understand the concept of threshold effects with dosage increase. Uh, What we find is that with systemic toxicants, uh, we have a threshold. It's that dose threshold below which in terms of a population representation of responses, uh, we see no or limited effects. Above that dose, we start seeing effects. Until at some point in time, the dose becomes high enough to do what? Kill off the entire population. And these are circumstances of great concern in terms of human exposure, obviously. But it's also of great interest in terms of controlled toxic, toxicity, such as in pest management. Uh, If you have a rat infestation problem, uh, you want to be at the top of the dose-response curve in terms of using an economic poison in a uh, very lethal uh, way. We're going to try to understand some of the uh, concepts in this quantitized relationship, Uh, things like effective dose, margin of safety, and some of the relationships between effective dose and, and toxic dose. When might you have an effective dose of a poison? Well, think about the last time you took a therapeutic pharmaceutical. Uh, There's a certain amount of uh, therapeutic benefit to an aspirin tablet. You want to be able to take a dosage that uh, makes your headache uh, a little bit more uh, tolerable and less miserable, but uh, perhaps uh, not a lethal dose. It's just not worth it, right? So there's got to be a relationship between the dose that affects a therapeutic, a desirable therapeutic endpoint, and a non-desirable toxic endpoint. And the toxic endpoint could be just things like, uh, not necessarily lethality, but it could be things like kidney damage, um, nephrotoxicity. We'll try to examine some of the use of actual data uh, for no observed effects and lowest observed effects. We've introduced this uh, uh, in, in a very casual way in some of the introductory levels. These are these threshold uh, uh, numbers that we use in toxicology and comparative toxicology. When we actually have a threshold from, again, a no response to some sort of a population level response, the most sensitive individuals. We'll try to do some uh, um, uh, summarize the effective and lethal and toxic doses and how these LDs, lethal dose for 50 percent of the population is used in comparative toxicology to compare to toxicants. Uh, In the introductory lecture we talked about very toxic uh, chemical compounds versus slightly toxic. Uh, How do we know that those are the appropriate uh, terms to use? Quite often it's by comparing terms such as LD50s or lethal doses for 50% of the population. We'll finally try to understand some of the uh, risk assessment models that we use in toxicology. Uh, We will have some lectures where we'll talk about risk assessment and modeling uh, exercises, not only in human health risk assessment, but also in ecotoxicological risk assessment. But we'll try to understand uh, one of the most important models and that's the multi-stage model for uh, non-threshold responses. And these non-threshold responses are sometimes uh, called cancer. Uh, It's a non-threshold response. You may have heard the one-molecule, one-hit theory of cancer, that if one molecule, a carcinogen, can change one cell and make it uh, uh, differentiate in a, in, a, in a terribly different way uh, than the ones around it, uncontrolled differentiation, that in essence can multiply that one-hit effect, and that is one of the theories of cancer. So with that... What is a dose is probably the best way to start off the discussion of dose response quantization, and it can be defined as the amount of a, of a substance that's administered at one time. This is differentiated from a dosage, and we have all taken prescription medic- medications, and you can see that a certain dose and a certain dosage is important when we take because uh, these medications because we want to achieve a therapeutic endpoint and not a toxic endpoint. When we have an overdose situation, somebody that's uh, perhaps clinically depressed and tries to commit suicide with a pharmaceutical, there is an overdose, they've taken too much. The dosage is defined as the amount per unit weight of the exposed individual and so those of you that have been around children or have children uh, know that sometimes we have uh, in the uh, very flavored, sometimes, uh, medications we we uh, give to children, there are lower doses because children have a lower average body weight. And so body weight becomes an important part. And this actually is part of, as we will learn in storage and distribution, the volume of distribution. Uh, think of yourself as a big bucket. Uh, some of us are little buckets, some of us are big buckets. Children are smaller buckets. And in terms of the dilution, if we fill that bucket with water, what is the dilution of a known dose or a fixed amount? In a larger bucket, the overall concentration is going to be lower. It's very simple uh, quantitative relationships in terms of dose response. We want to present in therapeutics uh, a sufficient concentration to perhaps a pathogen uh, or uh, some sort of other uh, medical situation. Uh, and so we want to make sure that that concentration, volume of distribution, is accounted for in determination of the dose, the size of the dose of the medication. Uh, what we find in uh, dose uh, response is that exposure is characterized by the number of doses, the frequency of dosing, and the total period of time for the exposure. Okay, And so it is often very difficult to talk about toxicity because, for example, uh, an acute exposure is not necessarily an acute dose Okay, Uh, in terms of toxicity. Uh, That's why I always have a major issue with media representations of chemicals when they label them toxic. Yes, it may be toxic, uh, but it may not be toxic. Uh, There is lead in our food. There is lead in the natural background of the air that we breathe, the the soil that we touch, and uh, the water that we drink. Okay, there is a natural background of this lead. Is it toxic to us? Is a question in terms of looking at all of the potential, in the case of lead, neurotoxicological effects. If the dose is sufficient, there is a toxicity but we do have background of many of these chemicals that are non-anthropogenic. They are not synthetic chemicals. They are just there. And so we try to characterize this quantitative relationship not only by the weight, but also by the number and the frequency of dosing. In terms of quantifying the dose, one of the things we like to do is use standard SI units, System Internationale is the universal standard unit, uh, but uh, milligrams, as it turns out, because it's a smaller unit, more appropriate in terms of the human body and the size of toxic, uh, doses of toxic chemicals, milligrams is usually what we talk about in toxicology. In terms of the dosage, how we calculate that, the units that you'll see, you'll see milligrams, which is the dose, uh, divided by kilograms body weight and over a duration, and that's typically in days. So milligram per kilogram per day is sometimes the favorite uh, expression of dosage. Uh, Now these exposures can be quantified in relation to the environmental media or the media of transmission of the toxicant into the organism. We use the uh, units of concentration, milligrams per liter in water, milligrams per kilogram in food uh, or in soil, and uh, milligrams per cubic meter in air for respiratory toxicants. Sometimes uh, you will find uh, the common units, parts per million and parts per billion, being used. Uh, We find that sometimes even in the modern scientific literature. Uh, This is uh, perhaps a holdover. Uh, It does lead to a little bit of confusion, although you will find many people in regulatory science, uh, in science itself, still using the terms parts per million, parts per billion. A part per million is a milligram per kilogram or a milligram per liter. Know that uh, translation. A part per billion is a microgram per liter. Okay. So sometimes the common units will come into conversation, I'll use them myself on occasion Again, because it is a part of the lexicon of toxicology of science in terms of environmental relationships, for example, we will hear about the maximum contaminant level of lead in water, for example, the MCL, a regulatory science standard. One could say that is fifteen uh, parts per million, but you could also say that it is fifteen milligrams per liter. These are equivalent dose uh, equivalent concentrations. I also like to. Uh, remind myself that uh, 10,000 parts per million or 10,000 milligrams per liter is equal to 1%. Okay? And that's just a good uh, relationship to have in the back of your mind in terms of looking at concentrations. For example, in environmental media uh, when you pick up a, a soil sample or a rock, sometimes the amount of zinc in that is 25%. It's not parts per million, it's in higher concentration. A percent, 10,000 parts per million, 10,000 milligrams per kilogram in that particular case. The other caution I can give you is to be very careful about using mass relationships when in fact molar relationships are more appropriate. Remember back to freshman chemistry and the number of moles and how we have molar relationships between chemicals in terms of stoichiometry. Now remember that when we're talking about dose and dosage, sometimes we're talking about chemical, biochemical relationships of a toxicant and of a receptor. A receptor is a protein, okay? So sometimes make sure that you are not trying to do mass relationships when you, in fact, should be using molar concentration relationships. It is always best to really kind of take a look at that and say, what are the appropriate units in this particular use? Is it mass? Is it molarity? Okay? When we're talking about biological systems, when we're talking about chemical reactivity and relationships, make sure you make that distinction. Don't get caught in that trap. I have seen it actually even with professional scientists that ought to know better. Okay? This goes in your notes with an asterisk. Always, always make sure you know about your units and whether or not molar or mass units are appropriate. In terms of some of the key concepts in dose-response relationships, is that we do, in fact, have a mathematical relationship, and that mathematical relationship has a positive slope. And for example, I was involved in a uh, fish toxicology trial, where we look at a we were looking at a, a dose-response relationship of food-borne selenium to birth defects, second-generation birth defects. Uh, it's a reproductive toxin because it replaces uh, sulfur in in some biochemistry. When, in fact, in many of the critical reproductive parameters in terms of uh, reproductive success, we saw no positive slope relationship or we saw, in some cases, a negative slope relationship. We knew that, in fact, we did not have this dose response. Okay, And that's a key concept that we have a positive slope. An increase in dose will give you an increase in response. And so the rest of it is non-effect. So if we're looking for, for example, a positive outcome in the development of, of a medicine and we don't see that positive outcome, we don't have that relationship and it's a key, key concept. There has to be a cause and effect relationship that the dose is isolated as a single variable, an increasing dose in terms of the observation of a particular toxic endpoint. It's important. We have to have an observable response And this uh, historically has uh, been a lot easier than perhaps today in the age of molecular biology because used to be it was a clinical response we were looking for. We were looking for a fever. We were looking for uh, spots appearing on the palms of your hands. We're looking for lethality, for example, in in animal trials. Uh, No longer because with the tools of biotechnology and molecular biology, we now can go inside the cell, we can go inside the biochemical pathways and look for disruption in a in a very small domain. The question in terms of modern toxicology is, is a disruption of a biochemical cycle that is a non-lethal effect or a non-terminal effect actually a toxic end effect? And for example, we'll discuss this in terms of dioxins and related substances because with molecular biology tools now, we can go inside the cell and see adaptations in terms of receptor adaptations, molecular uh, adaptations on a subcellular basis. The question is are these a part of the linkage to toxicosis, especially when we're dealing with cancer and mutagenesis, or are they just the cell adapting to a toxic stress? Okay, so it's that sub threshold, the sub. Uh, Uh, on the the side where we don't see a toxic effect in terms of systemic effects. And so these are questions that are actually being debated uh, currently. We also need, in terms of uh, dose response relationships, the ability to do statistical management of the variability of all of the different individual responses. Those of you that come from a strong biology background know that biology is uh, wrote with uh, multiple levels of variation, species variation, genetic variation, uh, age and sex variation. Quite often you'll see a toxicology trial uh, that will identify a particular species of rat used in the trial of a specific gender, male, sprague, dolly, rats. And they might even have a, uh, a differentiation in terms of their genetic lineage even more specific than that. The idea being that if other scientists want to reproduce that, that they can reproduce it from the same, essentially, uh, parentage in terms of the animal model. Uh, We find quite often that rats and mice will have different dose response effects uh, in terms of the quantization of the relationship. So the LD50 in mice might be different from the LD50 in rats, both rodents. Okay, This is some of the challenges of comparative toxicology. What we do, by the way, because we recognize that in comparative toxicology that we are different, the way we satisfy our need to have a conservative relationship with this, between us and those toxic chemicals is we use safety factors. We invoke safety factors of 10, 100, 1,000, even in some cases uh, 10,000 or 100,000 in terms of the acceptable dose, for example, in the human food chain. Now, what we can do here in the next few slides is categorize uh, some of the toxic effects or the responses in a general way. Uh, these will be uh, what I call ma- the major uh, categories. Uh, for example, inflammation. This can be a local or systemic uh, response, and an inflammation uh, response can be due to uh, a damage, uh, vascular damage in terms of uh, walls of capillaries or other blood vessels. Uh, allowing leakage uh it can be due to uh, an inflammatory response uh, in terms of wounding infection or uh a uh, allergic effect uh, we can have necrosis which is can be a uh, cell very localized cellular death or uh, tissue death of some variety uh this can be uh lethal uh in terms of uh, the ability of that organ or organelle to do what it needs to do uh, there can be enzyme inhibition, and these can be biochemical uh, pathway interruptions. Uh, there can be uh, competitive or non-competitive interactions. We'll talk about some of those things like cholinesterase uh, inhibition, which we introduced and we'll talk about in uh, significant detail in our target organ toxicology lecture. Uh, we can have biochemical uh, uncoupling where we have, for example, uh, with uh, chloro, uh, pentachlorophenol is a, uh, a biocoupling uh, reagent. It's a fence post treatment chemical. Uh, it's a, a fungicide. Um, it interferes with phosphate molecule uh, synthesis, uh, ATP, uh, for example. Uh, lethal synthesis, where, in fact, a toxicant is incorporated into a biochemical pathway. Uh, we'll talk about the uh, example of fluoroacetate uh, being introduced into the Krebs cycle uh, from the plant uh, gastrolobium uh, that's native to South America and Australia, and it's also used in the rodenticide uh. Uh, We can talk about lipid peroxidation, uh, free radical oxidation, the role of antioxidants and oxidative stress, where we have this uh, uh, oxidation of fatty acids. Uh, The fatty acids make up this cellular membrane. Uh, Things that are inside cells sometimes can be extraordinarily damaging outside of those cells. Uh, Not only do we have cell death, but we can have, for example, lysozymes released, uh, digestive enzymes, that start digesting other tissues. Uh, how many of you have ever wondered about why our stomachs can actually digest all of these animal tissues we eat without digesting itself? It's controlled uh, concentrations within cells, and typically uh, that leads us in terms of our ability to have stasis of uh, uh, these various uh, types of very, very digestive, uh, uh, toxic, and potentially toxic releases of these uh, enzymes. We can have uh, covalent binding uh various uh, electrophiles uh, will bind to reactive uh, molecules or seeking out electrons dna is very electron rich for example uh and uh so these uh uh, uh molecules will form for example dna adducts uh, and they have covalent binding interrupting uh, uh various replication services by dna We can have uh, receptor interaction where we have false key and lock interactions between, for example, hormones and hormonal receptors. These will modify some of these uh, normal biological effects that are mediated by uh, the receptor. Uh, We can have immune-mediated hypersensitivity reactions, and these uh, can be uh, allergy-type reactions. Uh, These are where antigenic uh, compounds will result in some sort of uh, allergic reaction. Uh, These chemicals themselves, uh, when I say antigenic, uh, they'll form uh, antibodies to them. Sometimes the chemicals we're dealing with in toxicology are too small to have an antigenic response. Uh, You need typically something that's uh, on the order of small proteins to have a good strong immune response. Uh, But sometimes what can happen is a toxicant can actually bind to a protein in a hapten relationship and this uh, then toxicant protein uh, pair uh, will actually have uh, an, an antigenic response. Uh, what we find is, for example, um, uh, uh, the chemical uh, urushiol, which is from poison ivy, is actually a small catechol or di, uh, al- alcohol, uh, diol compound. Uh, it actually uh, is too small to have a direct immune reaction. But what happens in terms of uh, the oxidative uh, release of uh, uh, quinones as a metabolic byproduct of these diols from poison ivy, uh, these quinones are protein reactive. They react with skin proteins. And what we find is that uh, poison ivy will induce the formation of these uh uh, immune-mediated hypersensitivities uh, such that uh, IgE, which is one of the uh, uh, antibodies uh, that is formed in terms of a reaction, will actually bind with what are called mast cells. And mast cells are one of our major cellular response uh, uh, networks in terms of uh, in, uh, allergen uh, responses. And we might have a, a very small interaction or uh, effect from our first exposure to many of these allergens, but it's usually the sensitized uh, version, the second, third reactions that can have a far more dramatic uh, sensitization uh, effect. We can have immune suppression. Uh, For example, the uh, chlorinated hydrocarbons uh, will suppress the immune system and this will give us increased susceptibility to various infectious agents and tumor genesis because our immune system is no longer able to uh, uh, battle uh, the phagocytes. Uh, For example, um, uh, these uh, various neoplasms and non-differentiated cell replications that can occur. Uh, in chlorinated hydrocarbons and dioxins, we'll go through this, that uh, in chronic uh, uh, dosing of, for example, uh, low-level dioxin, what we find in terms of animal studies, uh, especially in field observations, is that the animals don't die of toxicosis. They die of, of infectious disease from immune suppression. Another category of immune responses is the formation of neoplasia. Plasia. Uh, we'll have an entire lecture on uh, carcinogenesis, mutagenesis, teratogenesis that deals with some of these. Uh, in a broad category, it's aberrant cell division and tissue growth. We can classify these as neoplasms, uh, new tissue growth, uh, tumor genesis, oncogenesis and also malignant neoplasms, uh, which uh, actually are carcinogenesis. Uh, Malignant meaning, and we'll define these in that lecture, uh, the ability of individual cells to migrate uh, throughout uh, the body. Uh, In this particular image, you see advanced uh, liver cancer. Uh, You can understand in terms of when we start talking about uh, liver function uh, and its role in toxicosis, as well as in uh, the ability to uh, catabolize uh, and metabolize uh, various parts of our diet for the molecules of life and all the energy substrates that we use, that liver cancer is particularly devastating and typically uh, very, very lethal early on because of the loss of the function of this particular organ. We can have genotoxic interaction, and this is differentiated in that there are second-generation effects. This is a chemical interaction with DNA, and it possibly leads to a heritable change. In other words, the offspring will have the toxic effect from the exposure of the parent uh, to a mutagen, mutagenic uh, uh, chemical. Uh, these can be broadly classified, and again, we'll go through these in our uh, further lecture on mutagenesis, but as clastogenic or chromosomal effects and also as mutagenic or base pair uh, effects in terms of base pairing in uh, the DNA replication chain. We can have developmental and reproductive toxicity and these are adverse effects on consumption and on the structure and function of the conceptus. Uh, this is, uh, can be teratogenesis. Uh, it can sometimes just simply be uh, a mutation leading to, for example, an enzyme deficiency. Some of the uh, toxic responses that we might see might be classified as idiosyncratic. And what that uh, essentially means is that uh, it is very, extremely variable on a case-by-case basis. There can be a genetic determinant uh, to a particular sensitivity or resistance to uh, toxicity. We find that this is quite often a result of the lack of enzymes or some factor involved in metabolism. There is a uh, a glucose uh, uh, 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency. It affects, uh, it's the largest enzyme deficiency in the human population. Uh, affects about 400 million people worldwide. Uh, because it's linked to the male chromosome, X chromosome. It's a, uh, um, a male deficiency. We find it in African-American, I'm sorry, we find it in Africans, uh, Asians, uh, Middle Eastern, and Mediterranean uh, descent individuals. Uh, typically what we find is that this particular uh, lack of uh, uh, erythrocyte levels of G6P dehydro- dehydrogenase um, actually will lead to a limited ability to metabolize oxidants. Uh, in this case, I give the example of permaquine, which permacune, which is quine, which is an oxidative uh, antimalarial drug uh, given to individuals. It, it starts a cascading effect of oxidative damage leading to hemolytic uh, anemia in this particular case. Uh, We talked it uh, in brief uh, in some introductory lectures about uh, methemoglobinemia. Some individuals have a deficiency in NADH methemoglobin reductase. Uh, Infants less than four months old have a deficiency of this particular enzyme, Uh, and this is sometimes the causative factor in blue baby syndrome when these kids, uh, when these infants are exposed to high levels of nitrate, uh, typically in their drinking water, The nitrate MCL is 10 parts per million, and typically we find this with a chronic consumption, chronic as much as you can with a four-month-old, of uh, high uh, nitrate uh, water or other sorts of nitrate-containing foods uh that coupled with the fact that there are the by the um, I'm sorry the microbial populations in the guts of infants are significantly higher because their pH is higher in their gut uh can lead to this uh, blue baby syndrome uh, methemoglobin is a oxidation of the ferrous iron on hemoglobin to ferric iron and able to transport oxygen. The blue comes from essentially an asphyxiation, a biochemical asphyxiation. There are also some people that just have a uh, metabolic defect uh, for this particular enzyme. We introduced uh, allergic responses. Uh, There is a full range of potential sensitizations. Uh, These are immune system mediated responses. There is a memory to it. Uh, typically it requires a sensitizing exposure. So the first exposure to, for example, a sulfa drug or a penicillin drug where you perhaps saw some spots on your arms, uh, these beta-lactams um, might uh, in a second or tertiary exposure actually yield to anaphylaxis, anaphylactic shock uh, because of the cascading immune response. The first sensitizing exposure is the one that sets you up for the allergic reaction. Uh, So typically what you find is that you don't have an allergy to things that you haven't been exposed to. Uh, When I was in Greece, I found uh, that uh, it's relatively common for people there to have allergies to olives and olive trees because they grow up around all of the proteins and all of the different uh, pollens associated with olives and olive production, for example you would be less likely to find uh, all olive uh, uh, allergies associated with individuals that don't grow up in that particular area. As I said, uh, some allergies may involve a chemical protein complex called a haptin, uh, where we have small molecular weight chemicals, but typically they have to be reactive with a protein to bind to make it large enough so that you do have an antigenic effect okay so that the bio the, the um your biology uh recognizes it your immune system recognizes it um what we find in terms of allergy is that there is an atypical dose response uh typically we find uh, that small doses are most effective when we get large doses we sometimes can develop some tolerance due to the ability of suppressor t lymphocytes to come into play to actually identify and have a, an immune system response to this prior to an allergy cascade of all of the uh, 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 responses associated with allergy, which again include formation of uh, immunoglobulin E from a hapten, uh, an antibody response, uh, the uh, formation of IgE and mast cells. These mast cells, uh, which typically reside on uh, structures such as muscle cells and sometimes skin cells, will actually release things like these inflammatory chemicals like histamine uh, in response to uh, a uh, uh, an exposure to an allergen. Uh, we find that in terms of uh, these allergic responses, they can lead to contact dermatitis. Uh, many of you might have contact dermatitis allergies or certain chemicals Uh uh, for example, uh, you can't wear latex gloves, uh, you'll break out in a rash uh, from the proteins in the latex rubber. Uh, sometimes we can have, in terms of the, the furthest reach of uh, uh, allergy, uh, anaphylaxis and anaphylactic shock. Uh, this can be fatal, uh, for example, peanut protein 1. Uh, can cause anaphylaxis uh, and even uh, fatal uh, response, allergic response in individuals uh, associated with peanut allergy. Uh, Some of the common uh, allergic uh, chemicals, pollens, pesticides, uh, various uh, sulfur chemicals like sulfites in food or wine, uh, beta-lactam antibiotics like penicillin will cause these and these are relatively common. I think about uh, one to three percent of the U.S. population has some degree of allergy. Uh, You probably know individuals that are very allergic. Uh, They have asthma. They uh, have uh, uh, typically a lot of sneezing in the springtime. These individuals are referred to as atopic. Uh, Atopic individuals sometimes... Uh, light, uh, fair-skinned individuals, sometimes red or blonde-haired individuals, and they typically will have a a whole consortium of these allergic type responses, uh, genetically based. Well, getting back to our dose response, uh, out of the categories of the various responses that we might find in intoxication, uh, dose response involves the quantitative analysis of these incremental increases in dose and then the occurrence of some sort of toxic end effect. A toxic end effect is an important concept. In how we define these toxic end effects, we've just gone through an array of them. And so not everything in toxicology is lethal. And you've got to remember that when we talk about the other side of the coin, pharmacology or selective Uh, uh, toxicity, uh, kill the pathogen but not the host in the case of uh, uh, infectious disease. Um, These are things that we kind of worry about in terms of uh, the amount of dose and the uh, elective response or the uh, anticipated response we want to see in a therapeutic uh, environment. What we find is that these responses will follow the normal frequency distribution that we find in biological population. These are Gaussian distributions. Uh, for example, if I were to take a uh, analysis of a very large uh, subpopulation, perhaps students on a university campus, and look at their heights, uh, we would find a fairly wide distribution. Uh, there would be an average height for those students. There would be a, 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 a one group of people at the lower end of the curve that would be shorter and another that would be taller, perhaps the basketball team. Um, those individuals would follow, uh, if the population was big enough, a normal frequency distribution. This is kind of what it would look like and you've seen this from introductory statistics and biology text. This is a population representation of vi- variability. We have in terms of uh, this axis, the x-axis, the, the response to the same dose And here we have um, the number of individuals, uh, few to many, and so this is a population distribution. Over here we have resistant individuals, the average effect in terms of majority individuals, the bell curve uh, that we learn about in terms of grade distribution. Uh, And then these hypersensitive uh, individuals, uh, and in fact you'll find more and more in toxicology and in risk assessment, we manage for the most uh, sensitive individuals if we did regulatory science down here probably we would be undershooting what at least is the majority of the individuals uh, what we found is that it is best in terms of public policy to deal with the most sensitive individuals and in fact the Food Quality Protection Act we changed the whole dose model the most sensitive individuals in terms of pesticides in the human food chain was examined and found to be children because of the amount of food products, agriculturally based food products that they eat that may be treated with pesticides. And so we changed our dose analysis to these sensitive individuals, the subpopulation that is infants and children. Now, in terms of a normal distribution curve, there is a relationship to uh, statistics and standard deviations. Uh, the standard deviation in couples, uh, one standard deviation is defined as about 68% of the population. Two standard deviations of uh, off the mean is about 95% of the population. In terms of these distribution parameters, we can get up to 99.7% of the population when we encompass three distributions, uh, three standard deviations uh, of the uh, distribution. When we take this frequency curve and convert it to a cumulative uh, dose response curve, we can get uh, an increasing population as a function of dose this yields a sigmoidal curve that is the classic representation of dose response in toxicology. And so here on the x-axis, we have increasing dose, and here we now have the response, which is the percent of the population experiencing that particular response. And so here we have, uh, in this case, doses of uh, milligrams, 5, 10, 15, 20. This particular axis is linear. Sometimes you will see it represented in uh, logarithmic doses. Um, And here, in terms of the response, these are percent of the population, 0%, a key indicator at half the population, 50%, and then 100%. And what we see in terms of a classic toxicology trial these are population analyses and so what we do for example in a rodent study is we will take um, some number of animals and electively dose them at ever increasing dosages across a kind of a tolerated dose uh, range um, trying to find uh, when the threshold will kick in in terms of the observation of some response now this can be as much a toxic response as a favorable therapeutic response in terms of, for example, uh, an anti-cancer drug being tested in a rat model as well. Now, what you see is that each one of these data points that make up these curve are actual data points. And so these are populations of animals. And so, for example, each one of these dose levels might be 100 rats. For example, in a large-scale pharmaceutical study, and so there will be not only an average, but also some sort of standard deviation of this particular uh, data point. So these are actual data in here, and this makes this is very, very important in terms of being able to use the data. We try not to, at least in th- um, uh, threshold effects, to use extrapolated data. We actually use real data, and so the apparent. Uh, the study design is important in terms of having enough data points to make up this curve so that we can actually uh, use them in comparative toxicology and in risk assessment. So, for example, two observed effects uh, uh, locations are of critical importance in these toxicology trials as we're increasing dose. So, for example, we might have one dose level where we don't see Uh, any effect we have another dose level that might be significantly higher than that and we still don't see a null or no observed adverse effect level sometimes also referred to as no observed effect level depending upon uh, whether or not it's an adverse effect or not and so this is an actual data point where we still are dosing the animals but see no observed adverse effect level those are typically the responses that we categorized in the previous slides. So We might be looking for uh, neoplastic uh, tumors. We might be looking for inflammation. We might be looking for a variety of toxic end effects in terms of the study. Typically, if they don't know the outcome of the toxicity of a particular chemical compound, they will be looking for a whole consortia of potential effects. There will be a full biological, uh, physiological analysis of the animals. Now the next critical uh, observed effect is the lowest observed uh, adverse effect level. And this is the first data point where you actually do have a uh, a concentration that does have some sort of toxic response. And again, uh, this is a real data point and because it's a population, there are perhaps uh, 10, 50, 100 animals in this particular dose group there will be an average and there will be a statistical range in terms of uh, that, uh, in terms of an observed effect. These are critical parameters because we use these in risk assessment uh, and we use them in terms of determining acceptable doses. Uh, the no observed effect level is, is typically the one that is used most in terms of uh, uh, risk assessment. Now we can use these uh, sigmoidal dose response curves uh, to look at uh, toxic thresholds. Uh, For example, uh, uh, it's just good to be able to compare, for example, two different chemicals in terms of their relative toxicity at some point or another. And one point that's of convenience, uh, nothing more, is, for example, when 50% of your population is actually uh, having a toxic effect. What's that concentration? it allows us to perhaps compare uh, relative toxicity. And that's for example, if we are looking at the response as lethality, uh, looking for example in uh, uh, various ecotoxicological studies, aquatic toxicity of uh, certain chemicals, this might be the response, the lethal response to uh, a chemical for 50% of the population of daphnids, which are uh, water fleas uh, uh, in an aquatic toxic- toxicity trial. Uh, that uh, will be calculated out in terms of a drop line from 50%. Uh, this is an extrapolated number in terms of this sigmoidal curve, uh, and this will yield some sort of concentration LD50, and we can use that LD50 or, for example, an LD10 if we want to go down here to 10% of the population uh, and find out what the LD10 if we want to be a little bit more conservative in our risk analysis. These median lethal dose, or LD50s, are very popular. Uh, how we do use these in terms of interpreting the numbers, we use them to compare toxicity. Uh, we can compare two uh, chemicals, uh, something that will be uh, only slightly toxic or relatively non-toxic. will have an LD50 that's quite often in the uh, two or 3,000 milligrams per kilogram range whereas something that is highly toxic will have an LD50 that uh, is less than one milligram. Uh, so these uh, these do allow a quantitative comparison. Uh, there is some uh, uh, limitations in terms of their interpretation. It does only measure lethality. Uh, there are potentially a whole uh, array or consortia of toxic end effects uh, that are non-lethal associated with this dose, uh, including potential for carcinogenicity, that aren't uh, actually contained in a comparison of LD50. Uh, something could have a very low LD50 but be highly carcinogenic uh, in terms of its uh, toxic end effect. Uh, we use these uh, best for quantal data where we actually have a very uh, good, clear dose response uh, effect. Uh, typically, LD50s work Best for acute exposure chemicals, uh, as opposed to ones that have uh, require chronic exposure to see toxicity. Uh, the LD50 is a point comparison; it tells us nothing about the slope of the curve. And we'll see a couple of examples where the slope of the curve will tell us a little bit more about the relative risk of a chemical. Uh, and uh, it does not really have much in terms of specific quantization of the overall toxic effects. So this is a useful but limited term having LD50. Uh, Not to discount or dismiss its use or ability but make sure that uh, you recognize that uh, there are limitations in terms of its interpretation especially in comparative toxicity of two different chemicals. Now We introduced the fact that uh, the shape and slope of these curves uh, does uh, yield a little bit of information. Uh, For example, in toxican A, the red curve here, you can see that as we increase dose, there is a rapid rise in toxicity over a relatively small dose area versus a uh, um, a dose uh, response curve that has a far more gentle slope. If all of them, all of these curves had gentle slopes, uh, we could find that perhaps the area in here where it's uh, pretty interesting in terms of comparative toxicity of chemicals uh, would be a little bit easier to interpret. What we do find is this rapid increase uh, allows for uh, potential problems in terms of LD50 comparison because things are changing rapidly in here. And one of the things we'll talk about later in the lecture is the uh, use of transformations or mathematical transformations to take this data and represent it or linearize it uh, so that it's a little bit easier to interpret. If we compare this toxicity, and for example, if you look at the range, the area under the slope between an uh, LD10 and an LD50, for the blue curve, it's a significant uh, gradual change, whereas the LD10 to the LD50 in the much steeper red curve, uh, is, uh, significantly smaller. Uh, this, in terms of, uh, managing toxicity might be a more useful, uh, relationship, uh, so that we kind of know for, uh, population that uh, below these sorts of curves, we should be pretty safe. In these gradual ones, that perhaps a little bit more problematic in, to, in doing uh, risk assessment because we have a broader toxic end effect over a broader uh, dose range. Some of these other thresholds that we might see, uh, you'll hear the term ED or effective dose, uh, quite often used for uh, pharmaceuticals. We'll see uh, ECs or effective concentrations it's used in pharmaco- pharmaceutical uh, incest, uh assessment uh, quite often in terms of uh, in vivo analysis, uh, looking at the volume of distribution in uh, blood and fluids. Uh, we'll see this uh, EC or effective concentration in environmental toxicology or ecotox risk assessment We'll see LC used uh, on occasion, the lethal concentration uh, for some percentage of the population like an LC10 in environmental tox. In terms of risk assessment, uh, where where folks are reviewing the toxicity of a particular chemical, you'll sometimes uh, see a a TD low uh, where the reviewer will examine the lowest published toxic dose and this can be uh, for a particular animal set or observed doses in the clinical history of uh, a particular toxicant. I give a le- link on resources to the Hazardous Substance Database at the National Library of Medicine. You can pick your favorite chemical and search it under there and get uh, many, many pages of abstracts of uh, the uh, clinical uh, findings of uh, individuals. Uh, we don't typically do uh, control studies of toxicants. Uh, on people, but sometimes people present us with uh, their occupational exposures or self-inflicted uh, suicidal attempts uh, where they uh, actually become a part of uh, our knowledge base in terms of the effects of chemicals on humans. Uh, TC low will be the toxic uh, lowest published toxic concentration, again, typically in reviews like the ATSDR reviews that you might find on the Agency for Toxic Substances Disease Registry website, also linked on the resources of the environmental toxicology class website. Therapeutic index is TI. This is used, as you can imagine, in pharmaceutical development. This is the ratio of the dose to produce toxic effects to the dose to produce the desired uh, clinical therapeutic effect. The uh, therapeutic index is a little bit of the uh, safety uh, uh, margin that we have. Uh, We typically will calculate this as the LD50 divided by the uh, effective dose or the ED50. What we want is a fairly large ratio because the larger the ratio, the greater the safety, and so we want uh, therapeutic indices of 10 or more. Uh, We might, for example, uh, short stick this a little bit and and use less than 10 if, in fact, uh, we're dealing with a disease that has a a bad outcome, a lethal outcome, Uh, again, kill the pathogen, but not the host, Uh, but uh, in doing so, you might get pretty darn close to killing off the host as well. Uh, for very serious diseases. For example, um, uh, the, uh, chemo, uh, the, uh, uh, the cytotoxic uh, drugs used in chemotherapy, these are very toxic drugs, have dramatic uh, impacts in terms of the health of the uh, individual undergoing this therapy. The slope of the dose response is important in uh, determining uh, therapeutic index Uh, We'd like them to be nice and crisp so that there is uh, a a tremendous amount of uh, separation between an effective dose curve and the beginnings or the threshold of the toxic dose. We'd we'd probably not like to have where some segment of the population, a significant amount of people, are having uh, large-scale toxic effects. When you receive a pharmaceutical a prescription, the next time, ask your pharmacist, uh, if they haven't done it already, to include um, the full uh, PDR, physician desk reference, uh, uh, clinical information on the drug. It's an insert uh, that they have, and quite often they will give out and explain to you the potential toxicity of this drug read it as an informed toxicologist next time in terms of the adverse effects. Uh, sometimes, for example, uh, there'll be hypersensitivity to certain sorts of foods, uh, sensitivity to sunlight, uh, all of these particular adverse reactions to a drug. These are actually monitored and looked at in terms of uh, therapeutic indices. Uh, the toxicity here can be just one of these responses. The allergic response or some of these other responses that we looked at in terms of inflammatory responses, all these adverse effects that we might find with various pharmaceuticals. We can also have an MOS or a margin of safety uh, where we exam, take a look at uh, the relationship between a lethal dose for 1% of the population and the effective dose uh, for uh, 99% of the population. Because now we're dealing with lethality. These aren't just inflammatory effects or various types of toxic responses uh, that might be recoverable. You don't recover from lethality. And so this margin of safety is an important, we want 99% of the people taking a particular drug, for example, to have uh, some effect um, with a very, very low likelihood that that uh, will have a toxic uh, end effect of lethality and so we want this number to be uh, significantly high as well. This margin of safety uh, does account more for slope differences. Uh, The MOS is the lethal dose for 1% of population divided by the effective dose for uh, 99% of population, but neither one of these indices uh, works for chemicals that uh, have no beneficial effect or uh, we have to have uh, repeated doses. These are typically uh, best for uh, short-duration exposures, not for chronic exposures of uh, people that have to take maintenance therapies on drugs. Well, I introduced the fact that uh, we were going to do uh, uh, some dose-response analysis for threshold effects and come up with uh, the relationship of uh, a uh, no-observed uh, adverse effect level, uh, but that things were going to be different for carcinogen risk assessment. And the way we do carcinogen risk assessment, uh, one of the ways is to use a linearized, multi-stage model. This does assume that there is no threshold effect for for cancer. Uh, this is reasonable in terms of the people that study cancer, in terms of uh, applying some sort of risk analysis to the way we understand cancer actually works. This has been a complex field of study for uh, over 50 years in terms of modern medicine. It continues uh, as we speak in terms of coming up with various theories and very operational descriptions of oncogenesis. What we find is works best in terms of carcinogen risk assessment uh, is that we use a linear extrapolation through the zero threshold dose. And this is from the upper confidence level that upper bar of the standard deviation of the lowest dose that caused cancer in an animal study. This uh, analysis will result in what's referred to as a cancer slope factor. So when you're dealing with a carcinogen, the question is what's the slope factor? And the slope factor will allow you to compare the relative carcinogenicity of two chemicals. Is it a strong carcinogen? Is it a weaker carcinogen? The way you do that is we if we look at this uh, sigmoidal curve in terms of the dose and the percent risk of cancer here, you see the same sort of sigmoidal curve, but at some point in time we find a dose. And now this is the lowest dose that actually did produce cancer in the test animal population studied at that dose. And what we do is, um, and again, these are actual data points, we take uh, the upper bound limit of that and we actually extrapolate a line back to a zero threshold dose, essentially with the argument that no dose is safe for a carcinogen, okay? So we extrapolate back to zero, we ignore all this area underneath, and we produce a straight line. This is the line that has a certain slope, and the slope factor, which is the risk over dose is what is compared in carcinogenic chemicals, okay? So just a different approach, same basic inputs. What we're looking at is the observation of tumors or neoplasia in animal studies related to potentially carcinogenic chemicals. Okay, not all that difficult. Sometimes a little bit more difficult in terms of interpretation and risk assessment to follow up, and we'll do some of that in our dose uh, in our risk assessment uh, lectures. This introduces the overall concept of using models for risk assessment. How do we extrapolate? How do we uh, use particular information to model uh, the realities of the world around us? Uh, as I will say in our risk assessment lecture, all models are wrong and some are useful, famous quote. Uh, models uh, are, are attempt to uh, put down on paper what the complexity of nature uh, gives to us in, in reality. Uh, Sometimes we overshoot, sometimes we undershoot, uh, but we do try to uh, model uh, nature. One of the models for cancer risk assessment is the one-hit model that assumes a molecular event uh, will have a cellular response uh, leading to oncogenesis. We can have a multi-hit model um, for cancer as well, and this assumes multiple events. uh, Sometimes, and we'll talk about this in cancer, uh, our cancer lecture, um, and uh, what we find is that there are promoters of, we have carcinogens and we have tumor promoters. Uh, sometimes uh, these promoters uh, uh, actually uh, uh, open the pathway, if you will, um, via mutagenesis or a uh, change in immune function to allow carcinogenesis to happen. There are other types of models that we use in risk assessment uh, in toxicology. Uh, the probit model and we'll describe that here a little bit in detail and we'll actually use it and you will actually be using it on one of your exams. Uh, so pay attention to probit a little bit. It is just one of the transformations that allows us to take the numerical information and in dose response quantitative relationships and make a little bit more sense out of it and use it uh, in a very defined way in risk assessment. In the probit uh, model, again, we take uh, we try to linearize that rapidly changing area in a sigmoidal dose-response curve. Other models like PBPK, physiologically based pharmacokinetic models, uh, we will in this class uh, uh, talk about uh, lead spread and IEUBK, the integrated uptake and exposure uh, biokinetic model for lead, blood lead in children. Uh, blood lead in children is such a large concern that we've put the millions of dollars into defining a mathematical model of all the compartments, all the relationships in the human body in terms of exposure of lead from air, water, and other uh, sorts of exposure pathways, Uh, for example, fugitive dust, um, to allow for a prediction of blood lead based on environmental contamination. This is a very challenging uh, approach uh, to risk assessment in terms of all of the study that has to go into defining one of these uh, PVPK models uh, it is non-trivial. Uh, we, we attempt to do this. We've only been successful in terms of rigorous regulatory-grade models uh, with perhaps IEUBK, and there are still challenges even to that particular model. Well, one of the things I alluded to is that sometimes these sigmoidal curves, uh, the characteristic uh, dose response curves, they're good for representations, but they are sometimes bad in terms of the ability to extract information, especially in that middle part of the curve where things are rapidly changing. So sometimes we can do statistical or mathematical transformation of some of these variables. uh, It allows us to have uh, good, uh, uh, less rapidly changing information when we uh, extract uh, things like uh, LD50s from this data. What we do is we transform uh, the uh, data into an approximately normally distributed uh, variable. Uh, There are various uh, categories of transformations that toxicologists use to uh, make uh, interpretation of toxicological data a little bit easier. Uh, Probit transformation is based on a Gaussian or bell curve. We also have the logit transformation, which gives us the log odds of a quantum response. Another transformation that's used uh, often is the Weibull transformation, which is an exponential model. Uh, in terms of uh, the models that we'll use in here, we'll use Probit transformation. You won't have to know exactly the mathematics behind it, but on the resources website, you will find a uh, a downloadable uh, probit calculator that allows you to put some aquatic toxicity information into this calculator to yield, uh, for example, an LC10 or an LD50 uh, piece of information out of a a simple sort of aquatic toxicity uh, trial. Uh, one word of caution, and we'll, as we get to this in some of our further lectures, uh, that when you download this, uh, this is MS-DOS software of uh, ancient age. It was just something that's been around. Uh, nobody has bothered to transform it into a Windows uh, operating system. So you'll have to learn to uh, do without uh, fancy user interfaces. And uh, this is the kind of stuff that we did for years and years and years in terms of using simple computer programs to help us do calculations. Uh, one of these days, somebody will take that code and put it into Visual Basic and make it uh, prettier. Uh, I'm not the one to do that. Um, in terms of these transformations, as I said, probit transformation is the one that we're going to explore just as a learning tool of how to do transformations with toxicological data. And what we do is we transform this normal distribution into probability units. These probability units are probits, and that's why we call it probit transformation. What we do is we convert the percent response to units of deviation from the mean. We talked about one standard deviation, two standard deviation deviations from the mean. These, uh, these equivalent uh, deviations, are referred to as normal equivalent deviations or NEDs. Um, this will all make sense hopefully, uh, and it it isn't rocket science. Uh, this is again just a simplifying transformation, and as long as you document what you can do in a transformation, typically uh, you can justify what you're doing and why you're doing and how you're using the transformed variables in terms of interpretation. A probate approach, because so remember we can have standard deviations above the mean and below the mean, so we have a minus one standard deviation and a plus one, it's kind of hard to work with minuses and pluses, so all we do is add five uh, to the overall, and we avoid negatives in it. So we just choose in our transformations. There's a lot of choice when we do mathematical transformations. We just choose to add five. The way that looks is uh, this this chart, this matrix, so we have the percent responses uh, 0.1% up to 99.9% of responses. The standard deviations, remember 50 is going to give us our mean. so below that is uh, minus 1 standard deviation, minus 2, minus 3 standard deviations, plus 1, plus 2, plus 3. That much you know. You've seen that in the frequency distribution graph earlier in the lecture. We just then do a real quick transformation of that variable into uh, something called, uh, a net or a normal equivalent distribution, but we add five to it because we don't like these messy negative numbers. We choose to add five. And so as long as we're doing this with all the data and we're only comparing transformed data with similarly transformed data, this is legal, a legal operation. And so by adding five to all these numbers, we now have a range of data in this case of two to eight. Okay? And so the numbers, the concentrations then, uh, these percent responses, I'm sorry, uh, will transform into these probit units. We then take a log base 10 transformation of the dose uh, and this assumes a log normal distribution which is reasonable in uh, many biological uh, and ecological uh, impact uh, uh, analyses. This uh, then will produce an approximately linear relationship. This linear relationship allows linear regression. Linear regression is straight lines where we can look at slope and slope relationships. Things are not rapidly changing, or the, the rate of change in a particular part of the curve is not different from another part of the curve. That is the whole reason why we're doing transformations. We're just trying to make our life a little bit more simple, make our extrapolations a little bit cleaner. So we take this normal distribution again and we apply the, uh, NEDs that, and we transform these, uh, these, uh, standard deviations, these NED, NEDs, uh, off the mean into a, uh, a probit. We take a, uh, a log of the, uh, dose and we start into a probit unit transformation. So this data on the previous curve transformed into probits yields this relationship where we have these probit units, okay? And so what this allows us, the probit of five is gonna be 50% of the population, 50% response. We see that it's not rapidly changing in the center. It's the same data, we've just transformed it. We've taken all of the data, done the same mathematical transformation for each data point. It's a legal, legitimate thing to do. And it just makes our life a little bit simpler in terms of interpreting uh, the the graphs. uh, And we can calculate this a lot easier because we have just a linear relationship. We can plug one number into that regression equation and come up with another, okay? That's why we do transformations. It just helps us interpret the data a bit easier. So these transformations, uh, we take the normal frequency distribution. uh, We do an arithmetic dose to a log dose transformation. We take frequency data and transform it to cumulative data. We transform probabilities of responses to uh, these normal equivalent distributions. Uh, and then we just add five to give us uh, these probits. And so that is our transformation process of the data and, that we can get out of a toxicology trial. It just lets us come up with numbers that are a little bit cleaner, a little bit easier to work with in terms of analyzing that data. In terms of the, summarizing the major parameters uh, involved in uh, these dose response curves, uh, we do get out this median lethal dose, the LD50 or median uh, lethal uh, end effect uh, a number out of uh, these curves. Uh, we can come up with other sorts of indicators, LD50s, uh, TDs, toxic doses, uh, effective doses for pharmacological studies. We get out a little bit of a slope information. We look at uh, various thresholds that allow us to do risk assessment uh, in terms of uh, lowest uh, doses to uh, uh, a observed adverse effect. We can look at system saturation because at some point in time there will be a dose that is saturates the entire population in terms of the examined uh, toxic end effect. Uh, it allows us to do uh, a degree of comparative toxicity of different chemicals and how they relate in terms of uh, dose to a particular response. Uh, most assuredly, these numbers that we get out of uh, these kind of uh, dose-response relationships uh, allow us to, to do some level of risk assessment. Okay, and It's really important this is a tool that we use. Now there is an issue here, and I have you uh, explore that uh, in some of the readings on the course module. Uh, We've talked uh, fairly lightly about the issue, about the use of animals in toxicity testing. Um, It is not an issue that is unnoticed in the general public and among toxicologists uh, themselves. What I do invite you to do is is uh, explore this issue, uh, both sides of the issue, no matter what carry, what banner you personally carry in terms of your predispositions or your your thoughts on this particular issue. Um, I do invite you in terms of development of your critical thinking to look at both sides of the issue uh, in terms of how animals are used in the development of pharmaceuticals, how animals are used in the development of uh, um, uh, chemicals that are used in the human food chain, uh, how animals and animal studies and comparative toxicity perhaps make us safer uh, at, and, and I say this with a high degree of respect, at a loss of life, uh, or in some cases, pain to an animal. Uh, there is uh, there is a cost associated with determining this relationship. But again, uh, not to uh, uh, do anything but to instruct you to develop your critical thinking on the issue. Do uh, take a look at those readings at the websites of the various uh, groups. Uh, look at the alternatives to testing. Uh, look at the costs, the benefits. Uh, try to do a, an assessment of uh, what you think is uh, the most important need uh, in terms of uh, protection of life. Uh, and uh, how we use animals in that uh, protection of life. Well, finally, uh, we'll talk about some of these tests as an example. These are acute and chronic ecotoxicology effects. Uh, These do allow, in terms of risk assessment and eco-risk assessment, uh, a uh, development of a relative indication of toxicity through LC50s and LD50s and EC50s. Uh, We can use these test trials to look at QSAR development. This is quantitative structure activity relationships. Essentially what this uh, QSAR is, is if we have a chemical structure and we know what that looks like, uh, we can find another chemical uh, that looks fairly similar and get uh, at least a paper estimation of uh, the relative toxicity without doing some of the tests. So there's obviously limitations to QSAR use, so what we look at is functional groups. We look at uh, various representations of the chemical, what we know about it and what we don't know about it, and come up with a model, a paper model, of uh, potential toxicity of similarly structured chemicals. These uh, ecotoxicology tests uh, sometimes are very simple and, inefec- and, and effective um, and inexpensive. There is uh, typically good reproducibility. Uh, I've put a photo here of uh, a daphnid, which is a water flea. Uh, quite often toxicologists, especially ecotoxicologists, like to do first-level studies on invertebrates, uh, the idea being simpler life forms. Uh, there's uh, less loss of life. Uh, when you start doing primate studies, for example, in human medical trials, uh, there aren't many uh, physicians and the attending veterinarians that uh, don't regard that as being uh, significant in terms of uh, primate uh, uh, injury, primate harm, primate pain. Uh, there is uh, perhaps less of a response, uh, for example on looking at herbicide toxicity uh, on a plant uh, or in this case, aquatic toxicity on a water flea. Uh, we do these tests in uh, something called wet analyses whole effluent toxicity you will be required to do one of these on your examination, you'll be given the data and you'll calculate uh, LC10s for example and do some risk assessment it's kind of a uh, a learn-by-doing approach on the exam. We won't have it done in homework. You'll have to do it on one of your take-homes, fair warning given. Uh, these tests uh, are useful for defining environmental water quality standards. Uh, so, for example, uh, one of the reasons why it's very valuable to use things like daphnids, which in these water fleas are pretty much in every environmental water if you look hard enough, uh, On the course website, on the front page, on the home page, you'll see uh, a little image of a Daphnid and uh, a little music video that I put together called Dancing uh, Daphne, it's Daphnia. Uh, Go ahead and take a look at that for your own amusement but also respect for um, these small critters. They're very important in terms of their role in the aquatic food chain. And as I've said several times, that sometimes toxins can impact a segment, a uh, particular trophic level of the, the uh, uh, ecological food chain uh, can have dramatic uh, food chain uh, effects on the whole environment. Uh, we use these tests to look at um, the relative safety of chemicals. We put a safety factor on this. Uh, if, for example, we have an LD50 of one milligram per liter of a chemical in an aquatic uh, Toxicity test, we will often, if this is lethality, for example, or reproductive efficiency, uh, we'll typically apply a hundredfold uh uh, standard dilution uh to that in terms of a water quality standard. So if it's one milligram per liter, it's going to be one one one-hundredth of a milligram per liter is the regulatory standard, the allowable standard. Okay. And uh, typically what we find is that we manage this, and this is an important concept for an asterisk in your notebook on the most sensitive species. So ecotox, aquatic tox testing can uh, be developed from, for example, dozens and dozens of different types of animals, different insects, different invertebrates, fish, uh, maybe even birds and other uh, 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 biological inhabitants uh, of an ecosystem. It's the lowest or most sensitive uh, species that is used to develop uh, the uh, regulatory guidelines. Uh, Types of animals or life uh, forms that are used in these uh, ecotoxicology tests, and these can be chronic or acute, Uh, acute meaning uh, typically a single short-term exposure, uh, maybe a 24-hour test. Uh, Chronic tests are repeated doses over a long period of time. Uh, These can uh, tests can be run on bacteria, algae, various plants, uh, some invertebrates, uh, typically insects, uh, earthworms, for example. And vertebrates, uh, and typically, uh, rats, uh, are used in terms of, uh, the, uh, various types of toxicity trials associated with environmental toxicology. Well, that gives you, uh, at least, a, a good, uh, healthy exposure, uh, to dose response, uh, if, if I, a little bit perhaps more understanding of, uh, the pharmaceuticals you take and some of the testing protocols that are involved. And again, in terms of bringing this all home, Every time we talk about an environmental concentration standard, the MCL for lead and water, uh, the uh, dose that's on your prescription, you'll have a little bit more background on how that magic number was arrived at. Uh, recognize also that uh, you know there is a difference in terms of uh, population differences. We tend to group everybody together in that population, but for example, if you're a smaller individual, your dosage, because it's on a bi- body weight basis, is gonna be higher for a fixed dose than somebody that is a larger person, okay? All of these come into play. They help us in our risk assessment. Now, this is not a perfect system by any means, but it is the best system that we have currently, and it's done a pretty good job in terms of protecting us uh, from toxic chemicals uh, that may exist out in the environment, chemicals that may be toxic in our food supply, exposures, in terms of occupational exposures, and all the protections that we want to put in place via regulatory science, and also in terms of uh, human medicine, in terms of protecting us from overdosing. With that, uh, next time what we'll do is start on a journey, and this is a journey inside your own body. So this is going to be, I think, a little bit interesting. It's a series of lectures. We're going to go through the anatomy and physiology of toxicology in a very introductory fashion. For those of you that aren't biology majors or haven't taken an A&P class, consider this to be introductory, but enough information that you'll know about toxicology, target organ effects, the different sorts of pathways, uh, sources, pathways, and controls in toxicology that we need to be concerned with. Next time we'll talk about the first step in that, where we cross that epithelial barrier called uh, the skin.